This is the, the highest form of Taras Chasad al-Lashona. We're Mekadosh Shem Shemayim with our Talmud Torah. Mekadosh Shem Shemayim identifying with what our people are going through. And we're, Mirza Shem, in the middle, in your book, of a very complex experience, the Pidyan Shuim, of releasing the hostages. And obviously, the first place that Ben Torah turns to is Halacha. And that's where God is going to give a very extensive Halacha share. Uh, I assume I'm not still getting at the thunder, but letting you know that the halakha here is far, far, far from being uh, straightforward and clear. Um, what I will not talk about is halakha, I'll let to talk about it. And the second thing I want to talk about is the politics of it, because it's a very, very complex decision. Uh, it's not an easy decision, and because of the complexity of the decision, on many, 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 many fronts, beyond just the halakha front, I wanted to give you some guidance about how to navigate the next couple of days, when you look at the news, and when you see the images, and when you hear political commentary, and you don't have to be a tabakacham, you don't have to be a political pundit to understand the possible consequences, both for the immediate sense, the immediate war effort, and for the longer term. I won't discuss those, and that's not the, the job of a Rebbe, and that's even the first way. I want to discuss three or four frames by which we can process what's going on over the next couple of days. First and foremost, Whatever your political opinion is, whatever your prognostication is, whatever your fear is, whatever your military strategy is, it is an absolute moral and religious responsibility. When you see babies, husbands, wives, elderly people being reunited with their loved ones, or even with chance their loved ones getting clarity, there's only one response. Regardless and independent of any long-term concerns, I know it's difficult because every time you see a hostage release on the other side of the screen, on the other um, newsreel, you're seeing how many terrorists were released and how it's going to affect the war effort and how much fuel is being sent to Aza and how this is going to help Hamas Yimachshimam B'Zichron. There are times for those chashbanos, but when Am Yisrael is experiencing a Yeshua from a Baruch and at least for these people, and the nightmare. The nightmare that they've been through for the last 50 days, just for a second, if you have a hard time cutting through the thicket of emotions, just put yourself in the place of these people. Imagine Khalila Vachas, Lolina, your sibling. Imagine Khalila Vachas yourself. Chas Vashalom, your younger siblings. So when you see people and they hug one another and they're happy, you have an utmost responsibility, as hard as it is, whatever fears you harbor for the future, to be happy with them. And maybe repeating something I told you earlier in the week, so I apologize if I don't know who I've spoken to about what. The Gemara says, and until Leah came along in Parshas Vayetze, and thanked HaKadosh Baruch Hu for Yehuda, Pa'amodes Hashem, no one ever thanked Hashem. Chas V'Shalom, if you take that Gemara face value. Ha'itachem that Avram was never thankful of Hashem. Ha'itachem that Yitzchak wasn't thankful of Hashem. Ha'itachem that Yaakov wasn't thankful of Hashem. Ha'itachem why does it mean that Leah was the first to say thank you? Leah was the first to say thank you, even though she lived under imperfect conditions. By this point, the dawn on her shall never be Bechiras Libo of Yaakov. At this point, it's clear she can have four children or 40 children. She knows going to be second fiddle. And she consoles herself, and she acknowledges, and she reconciles herself to the fact that if I can't be Abra Yaakov's desired wife, at least let me be the mother of many, as many Shvatim as I can. So she was the first to say thank you under compromised conditions. Of course, Yaakov said thank you after Haramoria, after Sulamutsavarts. If his name was riding high, if the Baruch gave him promises, he had everything to be thankful for. Of course, Yaakov said thank you to Baruch Hu after the breast span of Sarah. But Leah was in a compromised state. And in life, not just in national situations, even in personal situations. 
Just because the situation, I always think about the contrast between Leah and between Chizkiah. Chazal say that Chizkiah and his generation possessed messianic potential. Mashiach could have come. Why not? He didn't say Shira. Chazal don't tell us why Chizkiah didn't say Shira. But to me, it's pretty obvious. Because the same 185,000 soldiers of Sancher of Melachashu encircled Yerushalayim, and they were killed, they were defeated, miraculously, the night of Pesach, the Chaim Bachziya and Yerushalayim was spared. Those same 185,000 soldiers had completely trounced the northern kingdom. They were the same soldiers who sent the Aseris HaShvatim into Galus. So when Chizkiah looked down at the broader calculus, it was not a time for joy, it was a time for suffering and mourning, because of the Galus of the Aseris HaShvatim that this army had caused, from which there was no recovery. The death of those 185 were not going to reverse the Galus. This is not Makasei Shira, because this is a fallen miracle. And we could have received Mashiach. We wouldn't be here right now. We live in utopia. We live in a different era. So you look at your world, it won't always be perfect. At a personal level, it won't always be perfect. You have to be thankful for the little things that Hashem sends you. And certainly with complex equations such as the one we're facing, the joy that Achenu Kobesh Yisrael, people who have lived through nightmare. As I'll say, Shvi is Gavro Mikul, the Gavro Abbas, I'm sure Abdav is going to quote it. It's the worst fate that anyone could suffer. And I'll let Rebbe tell you why, and why the Gemara calls it worse than death, and worse than hunger, and worse than starvation, and worse than dying on the battlefield. So that's number one. I know it's tough. I'm not speaking to anyone. I'm speaking to myself. I have to force myself sometimes to look at the pictures. Because I know that by looking at the pictures, my mind's going to start rolling all these narratives of what does this mean for our soldiers? What does it mean for my children in Aza? For fighting day and night. What does it mean for future? You're letting terrorists go. It's hard. I don't envy the situation, but we're not making the decision. Once the decision has been made, however it's made, and Am Yisrael who suffered, Ace Tzar is receiving Yeshua, you have a responsibility to muster as much inner strength as you can and say, whatever the long-term consequences is, I'm happy, at least for these people who receive I'm here. I'm being master of That's number one. Now I want to speak about three other issues and not about how to respond emotionally to the joy of the people, but just how to frame what's going on. There are many stories in Gittin about the Chorim Beis and the Very few about the Chorim Beis and the Trisha. Most of the Chorim Beis and the You know the stories in Gittin, the concept of our story. A high percentage of those stories are about Yidin who were taken into captivity. Whether it's Rabbi Shmuel ben Elisha, the famous story of Yeshua, redeemed him. I'm sure they'll come up in the Makaras later. Whether it's his children later on who were taken captives, which we read, this Navi Chatasi, we read about her on Tishabat, remember the child of the Kangadol, this boy and the girl who were put into one dungeon, they were expected to mate with one another so that the masters could draw and can share the spoils and share the breed of children that they would sell. Or just the stories in the Medrash of people who were Bashevi, or various Tanai who were Bashevi. When we think about our Gullus, and I don't just mean the Gullus of the day we left Yushalayim, but Sesim Yushalayim. I think about what has happened to us over the last 2,000 years. And you have to think about 2,000 years, because this is the end. What's happening now to us is the end. And at the end of history, is it the end in five years? Is it the end in 50 years? Is it the end in five? I don't know. I can't tell you timelines. But we're entering the final phase of history. We're in the final, final, threatened, obvious, we're entering the final phase of Akadosh Barakos' historical plan. So you expect there to be some symmetry in what's happening now, what happened before. And that this is, I say the climax, but it's the, the final, final battle to defeat Gaulus and to return to Eretz to bring Gaul into this world. So when you think about all that we've been through, we've been through murder, we've been through expulsion, we've been through forced conversion, we've been through blood libels, 
When you think about all the things you think about on Peshuvah, the fact that Yidin were always taken hostage and always taken captive is also part of our goals. And now that we're trying to defeat Golis, this is part of our battle to free the hostages and to stop this process. Why are we here and always taking hostages? Well, let's turn back. The first two wars of Am Yisrael were each launched because of one hostage. The first time Am Yisrael went to war was Avram Avinu. Why did he enter the war? And then once we launched the wars in Eretz Yisrael, which were actually launched before we entered Eretz Yisrael, then we launched in Ebanah, Yardin, what was the first war? Ayishma, Melech Harad, and they attacked the Jewish people suddenly. What's the end of the Pasuk? Ayash, They took one hostage, and Am Yisrael retaliated and defeated Melech Harad, who, of course, according to Chazal, was Amalek, masquerading as Kenan. And that's the premium and the value that we place on redeeming hostages from captivity. And throughout history, sadly, as we struggle in Golis, we weren't always able to redeem, but Jews were very often taken hostage. Now, why were Jews taken hostage so frequently? First of all, hostage-taking was a profession. Today, we look at it as barbarian behavior, taking people, denying them their freedom, keeping them captive in tunnels, without food, without nutrition, without air, without sunlight. Unfortunately, Taking people hostage and demanding ransom was just a way that pirates and cannibals and wild people that roamed the seas and roamed the deserts, that's how they made money. And they took everyone captive. But taking a Jew captive was particularly, particularly, particularly high motivation. Why was this? First of all, because it was never only financial. It was the Maharami Ruttenberg, probably the most famous captive of Amisra. Was the Maharami Ruttenberg put into captivity solely for money? Well, it's clear there's a monetary element. It turned into a monetary element. And, of course, he refused to allow the community to redeem them. And I'm sure it'll come up in the share based on the Gemara Gittin, based on his form of the Gemara Gittin. But obviously the Maharami Ruttenberg was the Gadol of Israel, was the Ashkenazic Gadol, and they knew who he was. And part of them taking into captivity was in the wake of the 13th century of Paris, France. What happened in the 13th century of France? The disputation of Paris, the programs against the Jews. You can't separate the ransoming of the Rabbi Rothenberg from the general milieu of Jewish history in France and the Rhineland in the 13th and 14th century. So part of it was ideological, part of it was to stick it to the Jews, part of it was to further degrade and to further terrorize the Jewish people. But also, you know what else is part of it? It was financially very lucrative. Why well, was taking a Jew financially lucrative? Well, first of all, Jews were more vulnerable. A lot of people ask throughout history, why didn't more Jews move to Eretz Yisrael? Why didn't Jews get up in the 14th century and move to Israel? Why did they get up in the 15th? You know why? Because the only way to get from Europe to Israel, normally, was to take a boat. You know the chances of arriving in Israel safely if you boat, board the boat in Venice, or you board the boat in a Spanish port? You know your chances of arriving safely in Israel without being either thrown overboard? or taken captive, because the first thing the pirates would do was who the Jews are. But it's impossible. No one can move out of their cities. As some of the Jews started to move to Turkey, after things got very bad, not in Spanish language, that's when a lot of Jews moved to the Ottoman Empire. But when they moved to the Ottoman Empire already from Germany in the 14th century, and the letters sent back, come, live with the Turks, they're kind, they're giving us positions, they're giving us security, back to the Jews in Germany, why are you suffering there? You know what the Turks said? And if you come and you live in Constantinople and Kushta, you can actually get to Israel by land, which was unheard of if you lived in Germany 
And again, the Rabbi Leighton was the same passage. They actually said, because they didn't know their maps that well, yeah, if you're in Kashta, in Constantinople, you just walk through Egypt, and then you arrive in Israel. Well, their mapping wasn't so great. They didn't have Google, but just to see how far removed Israel was from these people. But you know why they wanted to take Jews captive? Because it was certain money. Because you could take Jews and travel to any port city in the world. And it was obvious that the local Jewish community felt responsible to redeem and to ransom out the Jewish captives. So why should I take a Chinese, who the heck is going to take my Chinese, I have to go all the way to China to redeem him. Take an Indian, who knows who's going to redeem him. Take a, in those days, a black slave, who's going to redeem him? I'll take a Jew, just like liquid money. Any port I go to. Why? Because Jews felt such a moral responsibility that in every town there's actually taxes. Part of the taxes collected from every member of the town was you had to pay for the mikvah, the mikvah fund, you had to pay for the tamchui to make sure everyone had food, and you had to pay for the Pidin Shvoyim fund. If you didn't pay for the Pidin Shvoyim fund, you wouldn't live in town. So of course we were taken captive. Because it was easier to flip Jews for money than to flip non-Jews, because that's who we are. Call Yisrael Arad Zelizah. And now it's playing out, and it's much more complicated, because everything in the end of history with a sovereign state is much more complicated. So don't just look at this event as something which is anecdotal and a horrible part of the tragedy, which it is. We're at the end. And at the end, everything is being recycled. And now Amisol is being asked to continue our Masara of Gomle Chasadim, continue our Masara of people who daven every day to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Hashem, Matir Asirim, Hashem Samech. Think about that. If you're looking for a way to connect with what's going on, tomorrow, when you say brachos, in in the morning, instead of mumbling through brachos, as so often I do, because I'm not yet awake, and you say, know that HaKadosh Baruch Hu introduced himself to us as a Matir Asirim. He is Motsi Asmi We're all Asirim Mbeisabadim. We're all Asirim Mitzrayim for 210 years in far worse conditions if for far longer than the people who are now being liberated by Kurdish Barko. And Hashem was Golos, Rotsesi, Bitsalti, Bikalti, Bilakhti, and that's how we met the Rabbana Shalom. And Maur Afata. For Kurdish Barko's Matrasurum, we're also Matrasurum. And the Gaim Nava. And the third thing is you know what else they're going to know and it's frustrating. But they know that we're the people that celebrate Salakim. And that couldn't be more obvious in this war of light versus dark of life versus death, people that respect life versus people. I told you what I told my family at the Shabbos table. When I was there, I think Yossi was there, and who else was there? And then Zeb was there. It was a low part of the conversation. Everyone was a little bit depressed. So let me tell you something Rav Amitel said. I never say this at the table, because I'm the Abba. No one listens to me anyway. I said, now I want you to actually listen to me. And Rav Amitel said that at their lowest moments in the Holocaust, they consoled one another by saying that even if given the choice to trade places with their Nazi tormentors, they wouldn't. Because a worse fate than dying, or a worse fate than being tortured, is to become grisly, subhuman barbarians who are willing to mutilate and burn and kill and shoot and burn. That's a much, much, much worse fate. And there's nothing in the world, nothing that could happen to me that would lead me to commit the types of heinous atrocities that these animals who should no longer inhabit this earth, I'm referring to the terrorists, of course, that they committed. And that's why in these exchanges, it's not a one-to-one ratio. That's why the price is so high. I wish it were. 
And who knows if diplomatically how it could have been different. We all wish it'd be different. But it's reflective of the fact that we value life, and we build a culture of life, and we construct towers that will stand of life, and we build for the next generation, and cultures of death defeat and subvert the next generations. You don't build anything on a sea of blood. And the more blood you shed, the more regressive your culture, the more backwards your society, the more hateful your personal relationships, the more violent your interactions with others are. We build. Because we build, we respect life. Because we respect life, we're willing to pay high premiums for lives, and high premiums even for information about people's lives so that the relatives can have some solace, or high prices for dead bodies that can be retrieved and given to Boris Yisrael. Just think about the story of the Marami Rothenberg, who refused to allow them to redeem him. And even in his death, he didn't want them to redeem him. And finally, some dream came, and he allowed them to redeem him, and they redeemed his body for a huge, huge sum of money. You say, what's a body? Just put a body in the ground. But respect the body, because to us, Selim Elohim is not just the intelligence and emotions, but also the Selim Elohim in the human body, the human form, where we conduct ourselves with dignity. That's why we have proper hygiene. Look at the Pasuk and Kitei kill us, Elohim Don't hang a person unnecessarily. Certain people who are really based in, but don't hang on necessarily because the body will decompose and the body will become disfigured. And that's the Chesaron in Salam Elohim. That's number three. So one more statement before I say to Rabbi Gantli. Number four, and this is probably the most important one. The Medr says that a Kurdish Baruch who doesn't have an image appeared to Am Yisrael at the Amsof as Hashem Yishmilcham Hashem Shemo. And then he appeared to them in Harsinai as a Zakein Malirachamim. And it's really the same Akadosh Baruch Hu, but the human mind can't comprehend the duality, because how could the same being be both Mrs. Ishmael Chama and Zakein Malay Rachamim? And that's our message to humanity, that Hashem has both Midas Adin and Midas Arachamim, and sometimes we see him one way, sometimes we see him another way, and that's what's so hard for human beings to imagine, that's why human beings always fell into paganism, they assume that different forces in the world have different divine addresses. And we're trying to convince the world that it's one. Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Lechad. That sometimes it's an Ishmael Chama, sometimes it's Zakin Rachim, Mali Rachim, and they're the same. Well, you know what, guys? Listen carefully. Our people now, Mahu Avata, are just like a Kurdish Park. We're in that same predicament. Because on the one hand, we want to be Ishmael Chama. We want to defeat Hamas, Yimach Shemam, and rout them from this world. On the other hand, we're Zakin Mali Rachim, and we have to redeem the hostages. Right now, it doesn't take a Chacham to realize those two agendas clash. If we really wanted to completely eradicate Hamas as quickly as possible, there would be no pause, no delay, no gasoline, full charge, not full charge recklessly, but full charge ahead without any delay. But we also have to be Zakin Mali Rachman for the hostages and their families. And right now, those two seem to clash. We dive into the Rabbanu Shalom, dive into the that just like Eitzel and Rabbanu Shalom, they're not a contradiction, He's both Ishmael Chama and he's Zakir Mali Rachamim. That from this act of Mali Rachamim, that we are Yoshev on Rachamim, we're being Rachmanim like a Kaddish This will not detract or impede the Ishmael Chama, but it will advance the Muhammad. And only a Kaddish can create that integration. Because only a Kaddish can be Ishmael Chama. We can only struggle to do both. And right now we're Mali Rachamim. Hopefully, with Siyat Bishmaya, the Kurdish Baruch will turn our Rachamim into advances and increments in our Nochama. Those are four ways to try to process. Don't, don't withhold your joy for people 
who have been through the nightmares that you hope will never occur to you. Number two, understand that this isn't something that just popped up out of nowhere. This has been something our people have been struggling with. Number three, the reason that we pay such an unfair price is reflective of how we value human life. And number four, right now in Aza, it's hard to imagine those two agendas um, merging. But I could have merge them, and we hope they'll continue to merge them for us. Well, thank you.